All right, so this morning we're going to continue through our study in the Gospel of Matthew. So please turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And the title of this morning's message is, What do you want Jesus to do for you? So, think about that. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Because Jesus asks this question um, at least a couple times. It's implied, though, other times um, throughout this chapter. And uh, so let's what it says here in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read it to kind of just go into uh, this chapter. So James writes in James chapter 4, verse 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would help us, Lord, to see things as you see them. Lord, that we would not um, ask in ways that, uh, and for reasons, motives, and intentions that are, are not aligned with your will, but help us to see things as you see them. Father, having a heavenly perspective, um, Lord, heaping up treasures in heaven, and, uh, and Lord, not being self-centered and selfish about those things that we desire from you. For in, in going in that direction, Lord, we know that, um, Lord, sometimes you give us over to exactly what we uh, have the deepest desires in our hearts for. And, uh, and, Lord, you allow us to deal with sometimes the consequences of those desires. In order for us to wake up and to repent and to align ourselves with you. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach us this morning, that you would align our hearts with yours And Lord, as we do look at this question, Father, as to what is it that we would ask of you, uh, that we would learn what pleases you, what glorifies you, and what blesses your people. And so, Father, we commit this morning into your hands. Father, we ask your blessing, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in and of itself, asking God for anything is not wrong. There's nothing wrong with asking God for the things you desire, but... But the reason, the motives, the intentions behind those requests are very important. These should align with an agenda of bringing glory to God and be according to God's will. They should come to be known in our lives and be our own desire as we request, as we seek to receive from the Lord. In fact, it reminded me of the Lord's Prayer, the section, the section of that Lord's Prayer which says, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oftentimes we're asking in the reverse, may it be in heaven as I have willed it to be on earth. And then we ask the Lord to bless that, right? What we should be instead doing is, is really seeking the Lord's will as it is in heaven. So may it be done on earth. So think for a moment. Hopefully you've been thinking a little bit since I have uh, laid out the title of this morning's message. What would you ask or what have you asked of the Lord? What are your requests? Why do you ask the Lord for what you ask for? Because that's also a question worth asking. What are your motives? What are your intentions? What are your desires? Why are you asking what you're asking of the Lord? Now there's no implication here that what 
and why you ask for what you ask for is wrong. Again, I want that. I want to make that abundantly clear. You know, in, in fact, in fact, the, we just read in James that we receive not because we ask not. But then James makes it abundantly clear. Also, he makes it very super crystal clear that the reason why you know we don't get and sometimes we deal with some really rotten consequences is because we're asking for the wrong reasons. We're asking for the wrong things, and then we deal with the consequences. So, so there's nothing wrong with simply asking the Lord for something. But rather, it's an encouragement to think about these matters, that you may be purposeful and deliberate according to God's Spirit and truth, about your request that they may mean something, both here on earth in the temporal realm as well as in the kingdom of heaven and for the glory of God. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 22 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we can simply look at those few verses and understand, hey, listen, really the important and, and, and valuable thing is that we keep our eyes fixed on heaven, on the things that bring glory to the Lord. Those are the things that are going to matter eternally and matter to God. Those things that are temporal and oftentimes looked at with great value are those things that re- really are vanity, they're but amiss themselves. Here one moment and gone the next. You can't take them with you. And they add no value eternally to you or to anyone else. We also understand that there's a huge difference between a person who is heavenly minded and the person who is earthly minded. One has a greater purpose than the immediate and a greater hope that will never fade. The other has a purpose that revolves around the immediate need and a hope That changes with circumstances. Through this chapter, we will learn about God's grace, God's service, and God's mercy. God's grace is seen through Him freely giving what He chooses to give. That's wonderful because uh, He has an abundance that never runs out of whatever it is that He knows we need. And He can give freely. As he wills. He's sovereign and it all belongs to him. So we'll see God's grace. Hopefully understanding it a bit better. We will also see God's service and God's mercy. God's grace is seen through him freely giving what he chooses to give. God's service is understood by his standard of greatness. According to his expectation and example. And God's mercy is truly wonderful. And it is seen through the lives of a couple of blind men who are pleading with him, crying out to him to give them sight. So, what are we asking for? And what is God willing and desiring to give to us? That's the other part of this equation that we need to understand. What does he desire to give to us? We need to know. How is it that we'll know? Well, read scripture. Read the word of God and you'll know exactly. You will not be confused. You will know exactly what he desires to give you. What I see here is how the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching his disciples. It's wonderful. It's kind of like, 
I, I love the fact that we can look at Scripture and see these conversations in these situations and circumstances uh, laid out before us. And it's, all, it's like eavesdropping, but it's for our benefit. Like, this is wonderful. He's speaking to us. As he is teaching his disciples how to be heavenly minded, how to think in a way that goes beyond the immediate and see things with an eternal and heavenly eye, he's also doing the very same thing for us today. In this way, in having a different perspective, a whole different view of the things that they experience they could make the greatest impact both on earth and in heaven. Have you ever heard the saying, you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good? Trash. It's it's not true. The person who is most heavenly minded will have the most impact here on earth. If you do it right, you know, if if you're looking at heaven and, and that's what you, that's it, that's all, like that should impact our earthly we should have a passion for life. We should want to squeeze, squeeze the life out of it. You know what I mean? Just like every little drop, we should just enjoy and be overwhelmed with God's grace, for it is all a gift. No, for the person who is heavenly minded, that person will make the greatest impact both on earth and in heaven to God's glory and to their benefit again for all eternity. Grace, service, and mercy is what we're looking at this morning. So let's first take a look at this parable of a master of a house and some laborers that are called to work in his vineyard. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, that is about 9 a.m., he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour, that's about noon, In the ninth hour, 3 p.m., he did the same. In about the eleventh hour, 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came... Each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go, and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. The kingdom of heaven is like. 
the King, the Lord, our God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, is speaking of a very important topic that should be of great interest and importance to anyone who professes to be his child, a disciple, a loyal servant of his. It's like as soon as you hear those words, our ears should perk up, our hearts should be opened, and we should be willing and desiring to hear what comes after that. The kingdom of heaven is like. What is it like? I want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like. How is it in your economy, God? I want to know exactly what your perspective is. I want to draw my attention to you. I want to fix my eyes on you. I want to ask that you would give me understanding. I want to have your perspective. Now, last week we left off with Jesus explaining to his disciples that there are rewards for those who have left all to follow Jesus. And Jesus stating that the first will be last and the last first. And this morning, we continue actually this lesson to illustrate God's grace and how little we truly understand of how God's grace works. And yes, I believe because of what I've experienced and and what I've come to know that we actually understand very little about God's grace. The reason I say that we really don't understand how grace works is because even though we say we're under grace, we claim it, we profess it, and grace should be applied in various situations and to others, we still insist that others abide by the system of the law and not the system of grace. Let me explain a little bit. In some ways, we put across that others should reap what they sow. Get what they deserve. But we, oh, but we should receive God's grace. Right? It happens all the time. They, they should get what they deserve, you know, because we serve a, 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 a merciful and loving God, but He's a just God too. So we kind of like emphasize the, the just, the perfect judgment of God in those moments, and fail to recognize God's grace for others. Do we hold others strictly to the system of God's law while we request to have the system of God's grace applied to us? We need to understand God's grace a little more clearly in order to live in a state of gratefulness as we acknowledge that what we have and what we can do is all according to God's grace. Everything. Our salvation is by God's grace. Our ability to serve Him is by God's grace. Our very breath in our lungs, the beat in our chest, is all according to God's grace. We need to acknowledge that we have everything according to God's grace. And what we do or the abilities that we have are all according to God's grace and forgiveness. And the assurance of heaven itself is enough to live a life that is completely given to serving and worshiping the Lord until we see Him face to face. This parable is all about grace. It's all about the kingdom of heaven. We have a master of a house who goes out early in the morning at dawn, which means... The light comes out, but the sun hasn't peaked. So that, that's what that means. So before 
that. And, and we know that he came into the marketplace at 6 a.m., at the beginning of the day. And it's at that point that he made an agreement with these day laborers to work for a denarius each for the day in his vineyard. And so he sent them off. He said, go. And they went. They went into the vineyard and they started to work. He went out again about 9 a.m., the master of the house, that is, to the marketplace, and found some more men standing there, some day laborers. And he, too, told them, why are you standing? Go get to work. Get to work. 9 a.m., three hours later, go. And he told them this. He says, whatever is right, I will give you. Whatever is right. So he didn't make an agreement as far as a denarius was concerned, but, but he told them, hey, simply, well, what's, what's right, I will give you. They trusted him. They went off to work into the vineyard. The master of the house did the same at 12 noon. He went at 12 noon. He went at 3 p.m. And then, finally, he went at 5 p.m. So the workday for them was from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. The 11th hour is 5 p.m. One more hour to go, and he was still going to the marketplace, still finding men who were standing around idle, not doing anything, and he called them to get, get to work. Go. There's plenty of work in the vineyard. Go. The day came to a close, and it was time to pay everyone. And so the master of the house called his foreman over and said, It's time to pay everyone for their work, the labor that they had supplied. But he gave them specific instructions to pay the men in a specific order. Those who came last, pay them first. The ones who came first, pay them last. I love this because through this parable, through this illustration, we see many things at work. And we'll, we'll see how it is that even those that came last are getting paid first. So already right there, it's like, huh, you know, they're already getting paid. Already kind of looking at those guys is like, okay, well, maybe getting getting them out of the way really quick. So we know that the ones that were there first were thinking, we should be we should be getting paid more. We know that they had that thought in their mind. So seeing how the men who had been hired last received a denarius, the men who had been hired first thought that they would receive more since they had worked all day. But when they received the same, they grumbled. They received one denarius for a day's work. The same as the people who came at the 11th hour. What in the world, right? They complained, they grumbled to the master of the house. Telling him that they had worked all day under the burden of, uh, of, of time and effort in the hot sun... But these had only worked one hour and have been given the same amount. This is where the lesson comes together. Number one, the master of the house did no one wrong but paid them what they had agreed upon. Did the first men that he picked up from the marketplace, did they not agree to one denarius? They did. So, it was very simple. Stop grumbling and take what we agreed upon and leave. And go. It wasn't harsh. It was exactly what they agreed upon. 
Secondly, the master of the house chose to give to the last worker as he did to the first worker a denarius for the work done. No matter how long he paid them all the same. No matter how long they worked. Why? Because the master's right and privilege to choose to give as he wills is right because it belongs to him. It, it all belongs to him. It does, I'm, I'm giving to every single person the way I desire to give. And I'll give to you as we've agreed upon, and, and I'll decide to, and choose to give to you because it's the right thing to do. Then he challenged the complaining men, asking if they have a problem with his generosity. He asked them, do you, do you have a problem with my generosity? Because it's the generosity that I have that you're complaining against and murmuring about and grumbling against. Is it my generosity that you're complaining against? And since this is an illustration of the kingdom of heaven, then we can be assured, as Jesus was teaching the disciples to be heavenly minded, that we too are being taught to have an eternal perspective and learn something from this parable ourselves. We see how the harvest is plentiful, the work is abundant, and there should be no one sitting idle and not working. Tending to the work of the master of the house, and the workers can be reassured that we will be compensated what is fair and according to the generosity of the master to whom all belongs. Think about that. This this is a, a lesson that has to do with the kingdom of heaven. And we can be reassured that God will not shortchange us, but he will give us what is fair out of his generosity. So can anyone really fail, lose, when it comes to the Lord? The answer is no. No, not at all. Not at all. It doesn't matter when we came in contact with the master of the house, we will receive according to God's grace and generosity and according to who he is and really not what we've done and how much we've put into the work. We were simply to get to work. I, I, I love that about the fellowship, God's people. It, it gives us a whole different perspective. We stop thinking in terms of merit. What, what really do we deserve? We deserve condemnation. Nothing short of condemnation. Eternal condemnation. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's amazing. That is, we are saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. For He said, I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. So when we begin to understand that no matter... What it is that we're rewarded. Sometimes we look at these earthly rewards, you know. Well, what am I receiving here on earth? I've given my whole life to the Lord. And I'm rewarded with struggling week in and week out. Health issues. I'm dealing with um, family issues. I'm dealing with work issues. I'm dealing, it's like one thing after another. This is, this is how I'm rewarded. Uh, you know what's sufficient, truly? is forgiveness. 
the hope of heaven. Everything else should serve to refine us, strengthen us, and purify us for the glory of God. Everything. Do we accept the good and not the bad? James said it very clearly, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. See, God desires a mature man, a mature woman, who when circumstances hit them straight in the face, they're able to get up, cling to the Lord, trust in Him, and keep going. Not be paralyzed. Sit on our laurels and begin to sing, woe is me. Because it's not about you. This life is not about you. It's not about me. When you take your eyes off of yourself, you realize that it's all about the Lord. And we have hope in Him. And that causes us to live with purpose. And with a future that belongs to the Lord. And in the Lord. So the last will be first, and the first last does not speak of time and effort as it speaks of God's grace and amazing reward. This is an important lesson for us to learn and live by as we should be joyful for all who are shown grace by God. Grace is not grace if we've earned it. We should begin to understand that God deals with us according to who He is, not according to who we are and all the great things that we've done for Him. They are all but proper responses to what He has done for us. And we should be expected to serve our Savior with our whole lives. Living, living sacrifices unto the Lord. It's like everything we are and who, what we do. What we, it should all be a living sacrifice unto the Lord. His grace should suffice. Eternal life, forgiveness, salvation in Jesus Christ. And then Jesus, after talking about this grace... He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like, and he explains it. This is, this is grace. This is my grace, my generosity. This is how you should see things. And then he tells them a third time that he's going to the cross. Talk about grace. He takes the 12 disciples off to the side, and he tells them again, uh, we don't have a recorded response or a reaction. Let's read here, verse 17 says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. It's not, it's not by chance that he goes from what he just taught on to telling them for the third time, hey, listen, the Son of Man, me, I'm going to be delivered over to be mocked and ridiculed and ultimately crucified, but I will be raised from the dead. But we see here how the 12 disciples, as they're taken aside and they're told this, there was no reaction, there was no response from them. We don't have anything recorded. I, I wonder if they thought that perhaps this was just another parable and didn't see it as a literal prophecy. 
We know that according to the Gospel of Luke, they didn't understand these things. Nonetheless, Jesus pointed to, to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be delivered to death, tortured and mocked. And this time, Jesus specifically said that he would be crucified. There are other ways that they were, they were put to death, but he said specifically, I will be crucified. But also raised on the third day. Again, talk about grace. Talk about grace. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. They and the world will soon learn that the cross was all for them and sufficient to atone for the sin of the world for all who believe and confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. The Son of God was fulfilling the will of the Father for the sake of all and for the glory of God. Grace, deserving of nothing and receiving everything. It's not just a pardon. It's, it's the inheritance that is promised to us that is beyond imagination. So when we hear those words, the kingdom of heaven is like we should listen closely. We see God's favor. Now that's what's asked for. As we continue this next section, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. In kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my, and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know... Have you, ever, have you ever asked for God's favor? Perhaps not in this manner, but I think at some point we've all asked for God's favor. Not only was James and John's mother asking for favor for her sons, but also positioned in Jesus' earthly kingdom, of which they expected would be taking place very soon. That's what she was looking forward to. That's what they were looking forward to. And that's why her request for favor, position, prominence, Talk about ambition. This is very ambitious. Talk about a couple of mama's boys too, right? <laughs> mama's doing all the talking for them. They're just agreeing. Yep, right? <laughs> James and John, a couple of the Lord's closest disciples. Amazing, right? But that just speaks of their humanity. It speaks of the fact that God still used those two men to turn the world right side up. 
although they didn't understand. They, they were still asking for the right thing, just not fully understanding. Favor with the Lord. Who does not want favor with the Lord? Right? I want favor with the Lord. They were asking for this position, though. So Jesus asked her, what do you want? She had already gone over and knelt before him. And so he asks her, what do you want? She asked that they sit at his right hand and left hand in his kingdom. Prominent positions is what she was asking for. Notice that Jesus did not say in his reply at first, no. He simply asked if they were able to drink the cup that I am to drink. Uh, And in some translations, it also says, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Are, Are you able? Are you willing? They quickly replied, we're able, we're able, without, without thinking, batting an eye, that's it, we're able. Are you sure? Listen, careful, when we're asking for favor from the Lord, kind of like, take me to the next level. Careful what's required of going to the next level, right? Of going to that next place of responsibility, accountability. Because there could be a period of refinement, a drink to cup and a baptized to be baptized in. What that meant, a drink to cup, that means taking in the fullness of what is required. Being baptized, being fully immersed, not sprinkled. That's not baptism, by the way. Baptized is is a full immersion. Are you ready to be fully immersed? And they quickly said, we're able. We're able. Let's do this thing. To which Jesus said that they would indeed experience extreme suffering. Oh, you will. You will. He knew. You will. James would be the first to die among the Lord's disciples, and John would suffer but live the longest. And and that wasn't because they didn't try. I mean, to be boiled, yeah. Can you imagine that? I couldn't even begin to imagine that. Boiling oil, being thrown in there. You think, my life's done. I'm over. And then once you're in there, you wish your life was over, right? It's like, this is amazing. But he lived that. He was exiled to the island of Patmos, right? That was where he wrote the book of Revelation. But they would indeed suffer. The fullness of their suffering, exactly what it is that they've been called to in the Lord. They answered a bit too quick. They nor their mother understood what they were asking for. These men demonstrated that they did not understand as they would fall asleep when asked to stand, watch, and pray. And they forsook Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and even at the cross. Where are they? They all scattered. They all left him, turned their back on him, including these two. But even with this request of prominence, Jesus submitted to the Father's will, as this was not his to give, but his Father's. Jesus came to do, to do the will of the Father, and he submitted fully and perfectly to that which he had been sent to do. And apparently this whole conversation was had within an earshot of the other disciples. 
that probably wouldn't be a good thing to do. You know? We want to have, like, places of prominence. Position in your kingdom. Can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? Not yet. Just get away from the fellas a little bit before you ask a question like that. Because they were angry, annoyed at what seemed to be unfairness. They, they were kind of thinking that this was indeed given to them. And so they were indignant is what we have here before us. But it's at that point that Jesus didn't allow that continue on. He called them all together. He called them to himself to teach them about the heavenly perspective when it comes to leading and serving. He used that whole situation to teach them something very important. Again, remember that what we have before us is is a teaching of the disciples by Jesus. Have a heavenly perspective, and this is how. He went from the master of the house and the vineyard, the laborers, and that whole teaching of his grace, reminding them of his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. And now this. Yeah, I know, you, you asked for position. You ask for favor, but what I'm going to give you is a lesson on service. Really, who is considered great, not on earth, but in the kingdom of heaven? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like, in all of God's people, listen, right? We drew in a little closer. And so Jesus called them to himself to teach them about the heavenly perspective when it comes to leading and serving. They were asking for favor in his kingdom and he used it to teach about serving and who really is considered great in the kingdom of God. Oh, you think prominence and position is what being great is all about? But Jesus is teaching them that lording their authority over people, oh, that's for the Gentiles. We know that that's what they do. They exercise their authority over men. But for you, it shall not be so among you. We still have this worldly influence and mentality that leaks into the church. But then there's the identification of it and the deliberate rejection of it and the applied grace and humility and love and patience that needs to be exercised in the place of the worldly system and philosophy of organization and leadership and success, etc. It's, it's very different. That's why, you know, personally, being privileged with being the pastor of this church, I, I read things and I learn things and I'm corrected on things and I'm redirected with things and I, and I think, yeah, it doesn't line up with the world system. What do we do about it? We still expect excellence within the church. We should be given our best, right? Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. But at the same time, how is it that we apply God's grace and His mercy and His patience and compassion to the church, within the church? And we should be expressing it back and forth. It's not just for leadership. It's for all of us to apply, to exercise This worldly mentality, the Lord is telling them, out the door. It is not to be among you. They do it this way, you do not. It's a strong rebuke. This is not the way we do things here. All right. 
Do you want to be great? Because that's what you asked me earlier. You wanted to be great. You wanted position. You wanted prominence. Left hand and right hand. Come on, James and John. Right? You want to be great? Listen up. Be a servant to others. The Gentiles, you serve them. If they're in a place of leadership, you serve them. Me serve? Yeah. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is he who serves the most. Do you want to be first? Be indebted like a doulos, like a slave. Like a slave? Why do you have to use that kind of terminology? Why? Because the the Bible says so. Because God says this is how we are to approach and deal with others within the church. A fellowship. This should be exhibited clearly by all. You want to be first, be indebted in giving of yourself to others. In other words, be last in your eyes, but put everyone else first. I'm not talking about a doormat. I'm talking about putting other people first, their needs first, their needs over your needs. Sacrifice. That is what agape love is. I know we talk about agape love all the time. It's, it's not being self-centered, not being selfish, not being all about you. And yet we fail to express it. We, in practice, what we say is, that's inconvenient. I am not going to do that. That doesn't benefit me. I have other plans. I have this. I have that. And there's no flexibility. There's no regard for one another. We don't actually put that into action. And the Lord is telling him, this, you want to be great? This is how you are great in my eyes. You think so much of yourself. You don't need to love yourself more. You, d- you already love yourself a lot. Why don't you love your neighbor as yourself? Is what the Bible says. Love your, just take care of your neighbor like, like you take care of you. Can you imagine what just a portion of that would look like? Amazing. You won't lose in God's eyes if you do this. Philippians 2, 3 through 8 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is our perfect example as he came not to be served, but to serve himself, to give himself up as a ransom for many. In other words, in the place of. That's what that means. David Guzik said this, quote, Real ministry is done for the benefit of those ministered to, not for the benefit of the minister. Close quote. Very applicable, very fitting. They were asking for prominence and position for favor, and Jesus taught them about service and what God considers great in his eyes. 
They were asking to be first. Jesus told them to consider themselves last and serve all, and they shall be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. Lastly, grace, service, and now mercy. Verse 29, And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Lastly, we have these two men that were sitting by the roadside as Jesus and this crowd, this great crowd that was following him, was going by. And when these blind men heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out boldly, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. But the crowd was not impressed, they were not compassionate. And told them, it says here, to be silent. But in other words, shut up. Right? This is Jesus. Shut up. Stop. That's it. We're all going here together to Jerusalem. They all knew and they were well aware that Jesus had healed Many, deaf, dumb, mute, paralyzed, demon-possessed, all of those things. And yet when they heard these two men, these two blind men, crying out to Jesus, they had no compassion whatsoever. What are you calling out to him for? Be quiet. But even then they cried out even more. I, I love this. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Same thing. They had not asked for anything other than mercy. And then Jesus stopped and asked them, what do you want me to do for you? He knew. He knew they were blind. But their confession is an expression of their trust and dependence on him. The Lord knows. But our confession is an expression of our trust and dependence on him. it's It's a wonderful bending and submission of our will to him. Complete reliance and dependence on the one who is able. A personal confession of our needs to God is a movement of our desire and will toward God and is a request for him to do something we acknowledge we cannot do ourselves. Or else we would have done it for ourselves. Lord, let our eyes be opened. That is a faith that believes that he is able. That was their request. Jesus had compassion and felt sorrow for the suffering they had endured due to their blindness, and he touched their eyes and gave them their sight. And at that very moment, they responded by following Jesus. I pray... That God has mercy on each one of us. And if there is any blindness that is preventing you from seeing His grace, His love, His compassion in your life, that you also have this sense of urgency to ask Jesus, like these blind men, to give you heavenly eyes that you may see as He sees. He just taught. 
on His grace, His generosity. He just taught about His sacrifice and He taught about service. And who is truly great in the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is like, what are you asking Jesus for? Is your will, your desire, what you seek in line with God's will? Or are your eyes still blinded? Filled with self and your own desires? Or are you crying out to the Lord to give you... I want to to see what you see. I want to see as you see. What is it that blesses you, honors you, brings you glory, worships you, praises you with everything that I have breath to do? I pray that we too have this sense of urgency just as the blind men, and the wor- when the world is telling you to be silent, oh, be quiet. Oh, just stay off to the side. We're coming through. This caravan is coming through. Cry it all the more. Cry out more. Don't, don't listen to people who tell you to be quiet. You, you cry out all the more to the one who is able to help you see, to tear down those scales and allow you to see things for what they are, according to the truth. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to be heavenly minded, how to think beyond, beyond the immediate and see things with eternal and heavenly eyes. And that's what I pray for us, is that we have that perspective. What are you asking Jesus for? I pray if you're here also, and you do not know salvation, cry out to the Lord. Ask Him for forgiveness. Ask Him to be your Lord and Savior. In that moment of genuine surrender, He will meet you right there. He will take your old heart, take it away, and give you a new heart that desires Him and His glory and everything. If you're here and perhaps you've had this earthly mentality, even though um, you are His, repent and have a heavenly perspective of all things that you may bring glory to him in grace, in service, and in mercy. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for sitting us down this morning and teaching us about these things. Lord, we need to hear about these things that we, as we ask, Father, are asking in accordance with your will and not ours. And I pray that if it is according to our will, Lord, that it's aligned with yours that we are simply walking in step with that which you have ordained for us to walk in, the truth. And so, Lord, bless your church, Father. I pray that you would continue to build it up, strengthen it to your glory. May we keep our eyes fixed on you and cry out to you, for you are able in all things. What's impossible with men is possible with you. In Jesus' name we pray.